My name's Derek, for the ones that don't know me. Today's my first time to preach here at Cornerstone. So forgive me if I'm nervous, or forgive me if I stumble on my words. But I pray that God's word will be exalted this morning. Uh, we're going to have a few texts that I will refer to, but there's probably only two if you want to find them in the Bible so long. It's um, our text, Philippians 2, and also Isaiah 14. Now, sorry, I don't want to... Um, on a wet day like today, I thought a good introduction would be something like the Titanic. Um, we all know the story. Everybody knows the Titanic is probably more infamous than famous. But I think it's because of the, the big hurrah that was made about the Titanic before it sailed. The, the owners of the Titanic um, reported it to be the biggest and the best. And it's reported on the morning of all the pa passengers boarding the ship, a concerned female passenger asked one of the crew members about the safety of the ship. And one of the, um, the crew of the ship reported to her, ma'am, you have nothing to be worried about. This ship is so safe that not even God can sink it. Now we all know what happened. It sank. They did not have enough lifeboats on board. They um, cruised faster than what they should have because they wanted to break the record from... England to New York, and they collided with an iceberg, and a series of systematic failures led to the ship sinking. So we can very comfortably say that the overconfidence of the owners and the captain and the crew led to the death of more than 1,500 people. So we can see here the resemblance of the message that I want to bring this morning about pride and how dangerous pride is. Pride is catastrophic. And we will see in God's word that there's a law that Jesus has taught us. When I started studying engineering, I learned all about the physical laws of the universe. And instead of guiding me to think that we are so clever, that continued to push me to appreciate the awesomeness of God. The first and the second law of thermodynamics, the first, second, and third law of Newton. You have the law of energy, conservation of momentum, Ohm's law, Joule's law, and so they go on. I eventually learned of Murphy's law as well. <laughs> but that's maybe for another time. But we, we all are to a more or lesser degree familiar with these laws. The scientists among us understand the very preciseness of these laws and some of the others maybe just accept them. But we all agree that these laws that govern this physical universe we live in, this world that we can see and touch, but the same is true for the spiritual world. And we will see this morning 
that these spiritual laws are just as set by God the Creator as the physical laws that we can see and observe. Also consider for a moment that as humans we mostly hold the misconception that we can break these laws. You know, we have multiple attempts to break the sound barrier and, you know, it's just kind of what mankind does. It continues to uh, reach right on the boundaries to see how far we can push things. But think for a moment, if you step out of the window of, of a fourth floor building, you are not actually breaking the law of gravity. The law of gravity breaks you. <laughs> and it's so true because in the same way that God's law in the Ten Commandments is the law that breaks us, it's these laws that God put in place that break us every single day, but we don't want to acknowledge it. We don't want to admit it. So we continue to fight against this reality. And that's at the root of our problem. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So we'll see from God's Word today, the spiritual law that I want to talk about is the law of pride and humility. And that's brought to us by by Jesus in Matthew 23, verse 12, where from his lips he says, For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And I use this with the youth dog, we with God, without God. So if you want to exalt yourself, you will end up being without God. You will be humbled. James 4 verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. 1 Peter 5 verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. So in these verses we see that humility is an action. It's something that we can put on. Think of it in this way. I like to think that I choose what clothes I put on every morning. So it's a conscious decision. It's an ability that we still have. Even in our broken nature, we have the ability to choose what we put on. And the scripture teaches us that we can put on humility. So it's an action. Humility is an action, not words. It's something that's manifested in what we do, not so much in what we say. The first occasion where we see this law at work is before the creation of man. I want to take you back to Ezekiel 28 from verse 11 to 17. I won't read it verbatim. But Ezekiel and Isaiah prophesy about visions that they had. And most conservative theologians agree that this vision also represents the fall of Satan. And Ezekiel prophesied about the fall of the king of Tyre. And so I'll just take you, Ezekiel 28 verse 11. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. And then he continues for another three verses. 
to describe the perfect beauty of this being. Perfectly created. In other words, it's a creation of God, but perfect. And then in verse 15, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God and I expelled you, Godim Cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. Very telling verse that I threw you. I didn't ask you to go. It's quite a a violent and deliberate act. I threw you to earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. And in Isaiah 14, verse 13 to 15, Isaiah almost certainly describes the exact same scene. So this scene that Ezekiel had a vision about, Isaiah is prophesying about as well. And remember, prophecy is special knowledge uh, given by God, and it's not always knowledge of the future. Prophecy is also special knowledge about the past as well. That's how we know about creation, and that's how we know about all these things. So Isaiah, um, from verse 12 actually, The word says, how you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will rise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the most high of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you were brought down to earth, sorry, you were brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. So do you notice the five I wills there? Very strong independence. I will do this, I will do this five times. So Satan reached up into heaven, but he was brought down to earth. Again, he reached up in his own power, and in his independence, but he was brought down. And we don't have to go far to list five I wills from our generation. If you're in management circles or you do uh, self-motivation or self-improvement courses, um, I only had to Google it and on the first click I found probably 15 I could have used. I will follow my heart. I will follow my own path. I will work hard and make myself what I want to be. I will will create my own happiness. I will not surrender. So in human terms, some of these characteristics could be positive. But we are so broken that we tend to apply these principles to the whole of our lives. Don't get me wrong, we do have to be independent people. But independent in a God-fearing way. And we'll look at the dangers. 
in a moment. And also, just think about the brilliance of the Apple marketing team. They came up with these names, iPhone and iPad. I mean, the I is just hitting the sweet spot with humans. Because I will, I will, iPhone, iPad. Must be something in there. So, after Satan has, has sinned, we then come to the first pages of the Bible. And we have the six days of creation. And in Genesis 3, we read that the serpent was in Eden, and he approached Eve, and he very deceptively approached Eve, not fully coming out with his main intent, but firstly, um, he attacked God's word, saying to Eve, is that surely what God said? Just putting some doubt in there, was that really what God meant when he said, don't eat the fruit? Um, he attacked God's character, making Eve think that God is trying to suppress some ability that humans have and that he wants to kind of be a dictator. And then thirdly, he offered equality with God, saying, if you eat that, surely you will be as God, knowing good and evil. And same as with the Titanic, we know what happened. Um, Eve ate, Adam ate, and we, fought, we fell in sin. And the same result from the first sin, Satan was thrown out of heaven. Second sin, Adam and Eve thrown out of Eden. So we see this very consistent response to this sin from God. He doesn't stand for it. It's a very deliberate and immediate action. So from the fall, our direct fellowship with God is broken. Our life source, which is God, was cut off. We became subject to corruption. In other words, we have a finite amount of days and we die. We weren't created that way. We became subject to satanic harassment. That knowledge of good and evil was never intended for us. We have that now. And because of that, Satan will harass us every moment, every day. We became slaves instead of the kings that we were created to be over this earth. And also what we often don't admit is that the whole creation, the whole earth, suffered the same curse that we did. In the same way that we became subject to corruption, the whole creation became subject to corruption. Everything decays. Nothing lasts forever. Trees grow and die. We call it the circle of life. But that is the, the, the corruption and the decay that we are subject to because of the sin and us being cast out of Eden. And lastly, we also became guilty of the exact same sin that Satan had. Have we ever thought about the fact what Satan, 
his sin was, was exactly the same sin that mankind had in the Garden of Eden. So the first sin in the universe resulted in Satan's sin and his being expelled out of heaven. The second sin in the universe, the sin of Adam and Eve, and them being expelled out of Eden. So what is the sin? What's at the root of it? We know that it's pride. But if you read the definition of pride in a dictionary today, that doesn't really give you the right answer. Because the dictionary says that pride is a feeling of satisfaction derived from one's own achievements. So I'd say that's probably true. That's human pride. But we're probably thinking here about something a bit deeper than that. What's at the root of human pride? What's really the cause of us feeling this sense of satisfaction in our own abilities? So there's something a bit deeper there. With Satan, his uh, fall was not because he had um, a sense of satisfaction in his capabilities. That was maybe step two. But step one is a lot deeper. And I put to you out of God's word that the root of pride is that very deliberate seeking of being independent of God. So seeking to be independent of God. Pride is not satisfaction in your own abilities. Satisfaction in your intelligence, your thought patterns, your physical abilities. That is not the pride that God detests. The pride that God detests is this sinful bent that we have towards seeking to be independent of God. Thinking that our thoughts is in some way we can exist in ourselves. So that's the root of pride. And it can be summed up in one word. It's independence. Independence Day in America is celebrated because mankind is so good at being independent. Isn't that just who we are? We become independent as nations, independent as men, be strong, fight wars, become independent, sovereign countries. That's what we do through history. And we are just over and over repeating the same sin that absolutely God disapproves of. Because we continue to seek to be independent of God's sovereignty. Now think of it, Satan didn't throw off God's sovereignty. He didn't rebel against God's sovereignty over the universe. He merely carved out a little bit inside of God's sovereignty where he decided he can exist in his own ability and then take the beauty that was given to him and exalt himself. And then with Adam and Eve, the same. Eve didn't think, oh, well, I'm going to you know, just totally reject God's sovereignty. But because of our human free will, our sinful free will, we think 
that we can carve out this bubble within the big sovereignty of God and within this bubble do things that are exempt from God's will, exempt from His sovereignty. And for all of us, that bubble, if I can call it that, of independence could be something quite different. It could be intellect, I think, is a very big stumbling block. It could be physical appearance. It could be physical non-appearance. So you have such low self-esteem that that becomes your stumbling block. Uh, It could be private sin, something that you do when only you are on your own. Thoughts that live in your being that only you know about and you think it's not affecting your spiritual life. But it's all a sense of sinfully seeking independence from God. So pride and rebellion can turn the most beautiful creations into the most evil and corrupt. We saw five verses of the Bible just dedicated to describing the beauty of the covering cherub that is now Satan. So how awesome must he have been created? How beautiful must he have been? And yet, through pride, it's become evil and corrupt to the point that the rest of the word warns us against him. So Satan said to himself, I will make myself like God. Eve thought to herself, I will become like God, knowing good from evil. So the root of the problem is independence. Not that we have a choice. The Bible teaches that you have that disease, whether you want to admit it or not. You, you are bent to believing that you can be independent from God. Don't think, don't be deceived to think that you don't have that root, that seed. The motivation is pride and the action is rebellion. So the seed is the sinfulness of independence. The water that makes it grow is our motivation of pride, human pride. And what actually results, the actions that come out, is rebellion. Rebelling against God's sovereignty, rebelling against His Word. Surely that cannot be what the Word means. So we read things into the Word because of our worldview, the way we want it to understand it. As an example, Jesus shares a story with us in Luke uh, chapter 12, and it's commonly known as the rich fool. Uh, Jesus shares the story about a rich man who was contemplating what to do with all his grain. His harvest was so big that his um, barns weren't big enough to store all the, the grain. So isn't that a great problem to have? But think of it, this man must have been a very sensible man. He must have been very diligent, have a lot of slaves. He was most likely, 
if we say in today's terms, a regular churchgoer, really sensible, because how else would he arrive at this point of having such a massive harvest? And then he considers his problem, and he comes up with a very reasonable solution. Yep, tear down the barns, build new ones so I can store all my grain. But then he sits back and he thinks to himself, now that all this is done, I can sit back, relax, enjoy life because I've now got a lot of grain stored up for the future. And God's response to him was, instead of, well done, my diligent servant, God says to him, you fool, don't you know that this very night your life will be taken from you? And who will then get everything that you've stored up? Who will get all the stuff you worked for? So do you see the root of his problem is pride. It's this independence of thinking that he was existing day to day out of the sovereignty of God. He wasn't relying on God for his food every day. Maybe for everything else, but not for his grain. So it's a very good example um, describing how in different ways in our lives we all stumble on this weakness. There's no doubt that God hates pride. Proverbs 8 verse 13 says, I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 8 says, Patience is better than pride. James 4 verse 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And there's many more verses that we can read that it is so clear God hates pride. So how do we get around this? What's the cure? And we all know, like everything, what's the answer for every question out of the Bible? Jesus. So for the younger ones, if you don't know what the answer is, just answer Jesus. It's right, every time. Um, The perfect pattern of humility is given to us by Jesus. And in the text that we read this morning, um, I'll ask you to just turn with me to those pages. We're going to read through them verse by verse. From verse 5. So in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So Paul starts here by saying, this is relevant to be applied in your relationships with one another. Okay, this is the application. Um, Have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, which makes you think, what did Satan do? He used his beauty his own advantage. Well, that's what he was thinking. So here the, the two sides of the law already starts to unfold itself. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. So Jesus totally emptied himself by taking the very nature of a servant... In other words, he became a slave. And think about, he could have become 
a spiritual servant. He could have become an angel. But he very specifically chose to become a slave on earth. Being made in human likeness. So this is the third step. He took upon himself the likeness of men, the same as Adam. So like I said, he could have been an angelic servant. But he took upon him the likeness of Adam. And being found in appearance as a man, so not Adam before the fall, but Adam after the fall, sinful man, with the same flesh that we have, he humbled himself. And how did he do that? He didn't come in this sinful flesh as a leader or a military commander or somebody with rank. He came as a carpenter, born out of nothing, not even in a proper room. So totally, totally below what we would consider a king to be. And then, so we're still in verse 8. And then being obedient to death. So in this human form of fallen Adam, he was subject to the same fate that we all are, is death. So he was obedient to death, but not natural death, death on a cross. So a criminal's death. Totally innocent, but yet, yet death on a, on a cross. So this is, a, this is a pattern of multiple steps. There are seven steps, actually. How Jesus laid his godliness aside. And he continued to put aside all the attributes that he has to be the sin bearer for us. But it's not the first time that we see this humility from Jesus. It's the first time that we read about it because that's when he came to earth. But have you considered that Jesus was in the Garden of Eden? We read in Paul that everything was created through and by Christ. So on the first five days of creation, God spoke and everything came into being. But on the sixth day, things were just a little bit different. Genesis says that God was forming man out of the dust of the, of the ground. And then he breathed his spirit into man. And for me, a very vivid mental picture is Jesus, God, walking in Eden and being busy in the ground, forming us out of the dust of the ground. The great creator being on earth, forming with his hands us humans. And then when he's done forming, he goes further and he, he kneels and he breathes his spirit of life into us. And for me, this is my mental picture, but it's such a great picture of how God, the creator, humbled himself to create us. And then 4,000 years later, he had to come again to come and save us. The very flesh that he created with his hands and that he gave life with his spirit. So can you see from the first pages of Genesis, God is humble. Christ is humble. And from every page, 
all the way through, that just continues to shine out of God's attribute. That is what He is. God is essentially humility. He cannot be proud because it's just not part of Him. He's perfect. So we continue in our text from verse 9. Therefore, so you've probably heard the verse, if you see therefore in the Bible, you need to find out what is it therefore. So in this case, it is, Paul has just teached us something, and now something is going to happen. So because Christ humbled himself, therefore, the following things are going to happen. And from the seven steps of humility, you will now see that there are seven steps of exaltation following as an immediate response of God the Father. This is his law at work. If you humble yourself, you will be exalted. So therefore, in verse 9, God exalted him to the highest place, step 1, and gave him the name that is above every name, step 2, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, step 3. So God the Father ordained that Jesus' name will be the name above all names. In heaven, step 3, on earth, step 4, under the earth, step five. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, step six. To the glory of God the Father, step seven. So why? Why did Christ do all of this? For the glory of God the Father. What else is there in this universe but the glory of God the Father? Why are we here? Why did he create this earth? Why did Jesus come? Ultimately, for the glory of God the Father. We continue from verse 12. There's another therefore. And what it's there for is to turn our attention to the next bit of application, which is amongst ourselves, the saints. So therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. So this means that just as Jesus humbled himself, we should learn from that pattern of humility because without that, we cannot come to God in the first place. And do you also realize that obedience follows humility? We cannot be obedient if you still have pride, because pride grows rebellion. Humility grows obedience. So God works through our 
humility for his good purpose. But he also causes us to shine as his servants, not by the measure of our ability or our intelligence, but we shine as a measure of our humility. So that's just another vivid picture. You know how we taught to make our light shine? I think there's a song about it, shine your light for Jesus or something. But this is how you ignite the light, is through humility. The proud dampens the light. Humility is what ignites the light. And the more humble you are, the more you self-humble yourself before God, the brighter your light will shine. And, and our humble servants, humble Christians, are the stars in the sky that declare God's glory. So to know God requires humility. To come to God in the first place requires humility. And in order to progress in your spiritual life, the life of sanctification needs humility. In closing, I'd like to just mention two or three examples from the Old Testament and the New. The first one is from a man called Naaman, from 2 Kings, verse 5. So Naaman was a great man. He was highly regarded. He was a valiant soldier. He was a commander. But he had one problem. And his problem was he was leprous. So Naaman heard of the prophet Elisha and he thought, that's a man that can help me, that's a man of God. So Naaman went to, the God, to God in a big way. He brought, and I translated this into measurements that we can understand, he brought 750 pounds of silver with him, 150 pounds of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. So he arrived with all of this and all his servants at Elisha's door. So he was obviously expecting a good reception. But all he got was Elisha's servant giving him a set of instructions. So initially Naaman was a bit disgruntled, I think is the right word, expecting a bit more pomp around his arrival because of his position. But after considering what has happened, he thought, well, well, it's actually his servant that told him, you know, what have you got to lose? So Naaman had to set aside his position, his wealth. He had to set aside everything that he had, even his clothes. He had to strip bare and go into the Jordan and expose his leprous skin before he was washed and healed and then exalted by God. Another powerful picture of how we are very often very uh, properly clothed, but leprous underneath. Our sinfulness is a disease that is in our flesh. It's not something we can take off. But humility requires us to stand bare before God and acknowledge our condition before we are washed clean and exalted. The second example is in Matthew 18, where the, the disciples come to Jesus and ask him 
who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom? So you can see this is a question uh, coming from a position of maybe pride because position is important. And so Jesus calls a little child to him and places the child among them. And he said, truly I tell you, unless, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself will be the greatest. With God, without God. So Jesus here uses the picture of a child to give us an example of what it means to have Christ-like humility. Not human humility. The two are quite different. The, the last example is in Matthew 20, where the mother of Zebedee sons came to Jesus and asked Jesus um, to grant her one wish, and that is that her two sons may sit at his left and right hand in the kingdom. Uh, and Jesus replied to her, saying, Do you know what you're asking? Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit on my right and left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard this, this is the ten disciples, they were indignant with the two brothers. So why do you think they were indignant? I think, in a way, they were aspiring to have one of those two seats. So what did these two brothers do to deserve having those two seats? Surely the ten disciples must be first in line. And Jesus called them together. He's obvi, he obviously knew what was in their hearts. And he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, in, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we see this principle, this spiritual law of God that whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The way up is down. If you want to go higher, you must stoop lower, like God did when he created us. You want to be a ruler or a leader? Become a servant. You want to be a chief? Become a slave. It's the opposite of what we instinctively think is the right thing to do. I'll say it again. He who exalts himself will be humbled. Not may be humbled. Will be. It's a definite one for one. There's no ifs or buts. We know why Christ-like humility is important. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9 teaches us that the power of Christ is made perfect in weakness. 
That is when Christ shines at his best, is when we are our weakest. So if you want more of Jesus, you have to have less of yourself. If you want more of God's power, you have to admit your own weakness, your own condition. If you want God's anointing, sorry, if you want God's anointing, you must strip yourself of your own confidence and your own ability and kneel before our Father and cry out to Him, Abba, Father, I have nothing to give. The proud owners of the Titanic was brought to earth by the devastation of 1,500 people dying because of their pride. Pride is dangerous. Pride is more than dangerous. Pride is fatal for your spiritual life. God does not stand for it. And Christ Jesus has given us the solution. Humility is beautiful. God loves humility. God draws his people in who come in humility. And he makes us shine like the stars in heaven from the measure of our humility. Brothers and sisters, may we all humble ourselves before God. And may we all humble ourselves before one another as a congregation. Amen. Let us pray together. Our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, we believe you died on the cross for our sins and rose again from the dead. You redeemed us by your blood and we belong to you and we want to live for you. Lord, we confess all sins, but especially that of pride. Lord, the root of our problem is pride. In our minds, we renounce pride, but in our flesh, Lord, we struggle. Help us to forgive all others that sin against us as we ask you to forgive us now of our sinful condition. Please forgive us, Lord, and cleanse us with your blood. We thank you for the blood that cleanses us and that we have got a solution for this prideful condition. And we come to you now as our deliverer, our Lord and Savior. Lord God, you know our special needs. You know the things that bind us. You know the footholds that Satan has in our lives. The things that torment us every day. You know those things that defile us. Lord, and we pray for deliverance from those through the power of your blood and in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. We claim the promise of your word that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. We call on your word. We call on your name. And in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray, deliver us and set us free. We thank you, Lord Jesus. And we thank you, our Father in heaven. Amen.